Yes, Lord, you are holy, holy above it all. You have saved us. You have grafted us in. And you will save your people, Israel, and bring them back. We long for their salvation. And we know you will do it because you said so. And we believe your word. Just as you have saved us, you will bring your people back. And you will do it through Christ Jesus. And no other way. Because there's only one name under heaven by which we may be saved. It's through Jesus Christ that Israel will be saved. That is the covenant. That is the promise. We pray that you would lift the hardening, soften their hearts, bring them back to you, and that they would return to Messiah, Jesus. So help us not to boast. Help us not to feel proud. Help us to be humble. And in our humility, long and cry out for the salvation of Israel and give us faith that you will do it, God. We thank you for the way that you're moving in our hearts this morning through your Holy Spirit at work in each one of yours Continue moving now as we hear from your word. Help Pastor Blake to be bold and be filled with wisdom and filled with your spirit as he shepherds us and proclaims your word and the authority of it. Give us ears to hear, tender hearts, and hands to do what your word says. And it's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen and amen. You can be seated as we continue in worship. Thank you for joining us. Um, we are currently in the middle of a series of unlikely heroes. 
a series where we walk through Hebrews chapter 11 as we look at all of these people that are known as really heroes of the faith, this, this hall of faith in Scripture. Sometimes we can look at this passage and just kind of, oh, I know who these guys are. I went to Sunday school. I know who Abraham. And, and it's easy for us to lose sight of the impact of who these men and women were in the Bible. Today we're talking about Joseph, a very common told story, especially in Sunday schools, a very common uh, person to speak of in church. Not talking about Joseph, uh, Jesus' father, but talking about Joseph, um, Technicolor Dreamcoat, that guy. So if you would do me a favor, grab your Bible, find Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to start verse 22. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm getting over a cough. Since Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, it was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when he left. That's it. That's, that's the entirety of Joseph in this chapter. When you look at the book of Genesis, he's like 10 chapters out of the 50 belong to the story of Joseph. And when you get to here, it's one verse. It's like he told them to take his bones with when when, when they left. The end. All right, see you guys later. But think about that for a moment. Many of you, I know not all of us, but many of us are familiar with the story of Joseph. His story is crazy to think about. At the age of 17, given visions, dreams from God about what his future would hold. And then as he went through his life, he kept encountering trial after trial after trial. And through every trial, he endured faithfully and endured faithfully. And with the endurance, there was blessing. And then as there was blessing, there was trials. And that's like his whole life. And so many amazing things we could look at and talk about with the life of Joseph. And if I were writing scripture, which obviously is a good thing I'm not, this would not be the part of his story that I would have chosen to include. I would have talked about how he saved the nation of Israel and Egypt in one fell swoop as he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. There's so many other things I would have gone to. So when I saw this text, when I read this verse, it, well, Obviously, nothing in Scripture is by accident. Nothing is here because some guy decided to put it here. This is the Word of God, living and active. This is something God wanted to be here. This is what he wanted said of this man in this passage. So why this? He was about to die and confidently told his descendants, his brethren, people around him, hey, One day, it's not today, one day, God's going to call us out of Egypt. And when we go, take my body, take my bones out of this land and bring them with you. Why is that the thing of all things that he's commended for? We're going to take a look at that. But before we do, I'm going to ask that you pray with me uh, before we dive any deeper into this. Jesus, we are so grateful for what you do how in reality it's only by you, it's only by your grace, only by your will that we can know you, see you, 
So God, that's what we pray for today, that you would show us more of who you are. You would open your word to us. That you would allow us to see you more clearly. You would allow us to love you more deeply, to pursue you more passionately because of what you do through this time. All of your word is filled with so many examples for us to follow. God, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for your word. I'm grateful for those of this church that, that teach it. I think of our, of our Sunday school teachers downstairs. They are even now teaching your word to our children. And what a blessing it is to grow up in a place where your word is being taught, where your truth goes forward. So God, we pray your blessing upon those teachers as they love on those kids, as they share your truth with them. And God, all across the country, the county, the world, really, where on, to, on Sunday, all around the globe, your congregations, your body gathers to dive into your word. God, we pray your blessings there because we know you're not a God who is limited to a, a region or a building, but you extend beyond the vast, vast boundaries of the cosmos and you fill every aspect because you are everywhere. And we thank you for what you do. We thank you for how you are with each of us as we walk with you, as we know you. So help us to walk with you and know you more. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So when talking about Joseph, something that's really important for us to understand in this passage is this passage, while it's one verse long and might not seem like it, sums up really the entirety of who Joseph was. Let me explain that real quick because it tells us two things about him. He's commended for one, yeah, he's commended for trusting God's promise. He's commended for trusting the promise of God. Now here's the crazy part. The promise from God wasn't even given to him. The promise from God we're talking about was one given not to him, not to his father, not to his grandfather, given to his great-grandfather of Abraham. That's the promise he's holding to. A promise that was given at this point of, of human history, 250 years beforehand, the promise was given. Not yet fulfilled. But that's the promise he was trusting in. Something he wasn't even alive for. But the second thing he's being commended for is that he wanted to be a part of it. He knew. He knew that the promise was given. He trusted that there was a promise from God that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, would one day be taken away from Egypt and go back to the land where they were promised to inherit. (coughs) He knew it wasn't time. He knew he wasn't going to be able to go with them on his own. So he trusted the promise, and then he wanted to be a part of it by like, hey, take my bones, bring me with. I don't want to stay here. I want to be in the land where God has promised us. Those are the two things. And if you look at his life, those are the two things that you see constantly reappearing. He's trusting in God. He's trusting in the faithfulness of God. And as he's doing it, he just wants to be a part of whatever God's doing. When people ask him to interpret dreams, which he could do, he always like, no, I don't interpret dreams. Um, God does. God says this. Like, he just wants to be a part of it. He doesn't want to be the show. He doesn't want to be the main. He just is like, God is doing this. I just want to be a part of that. And it's an amazing thing about him. 
But for us to really understand more uh, context of this, uh, feel free to jump with me over to Genesis, first book of the Bible, if you're not familiar, Genesis, Exodus. Uh, First book of the Bible, last chapter of the first, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 50, is where we see this story take place. It says in Genesis chapter 50, in verse 24, Joseph is speaking, and he says, soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers. But God will surely come to help you and lead you out of the land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land that he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made, his son, made the sons of Israel swear an oath. And he said, when God comes to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with you. <clears throat> so Joseph died at the age of 110. The Egyptians embalmed him, and his body was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Basically, this is his last wish, his last breath. We talked about last week, if you were here, Pastor Rick was talking about Jacob, his father. And Jacob made a similar request at the end of his life of, hey, bring me back. Bring me back to the land of my father. Because at this point in time, the nation of Israel wasn't a thing. There were the people of Israel, but if we remember, Israel isn't a nation. It's not a people at this point. It is the name of one man. Jacob renamed Israel. The nation of Israel is the descendants of one man, Jacob, renamed Israel. So at this point, you have Jacob who's like, I want to go back to the land God promised us. I want to go back to the promised land. So he has his kids bring them back. And where does they go? They go to Hebron. The only, there's only two parts of all what we know today as Israel. There's only two parts of the entire land that any people from the family of God's choosing, Abraham and his line down, only two parts that they had any possession of. One was a place in Hebron. It was a burial plot, more or less, where he's like, hey, my wife Sarah has passed. I want to bury her. They're like, oh, take any tomb of ours. It's fine. And Abraham's like, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I want to buy it. Oh, no, no, don't need to buy it. We'll give it to you. no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to buy it. Why? Because he wants to own it and wants it to be, it's that first piece, that first piece of the land that is going to be all of his family's, but now it's his. And it's a burial place. It's a final resting place for for his wife, for him, for his son Isaac, for his wife Rebecca. It was a final resting place for Jacob and for his wife Leah. It was the final resting place for these patriarchs and their spouses. Why? Because while the promise had not yet been fulfilled, the promise had not yet been completed that this is the land for your people forever. They're like, but we just, we want to be here. This is, this is our home. This is what God has promised to us. And it's not happened yet. But this is their final resting place. And J- Joseph saying something similar. Except Joseph, oddly enough, wasn't buried in Hebron. Joseph was buried in a place called Shechem because the only other place that the people of uh, Abraham's family had any possession of was a bit of land in Shechem. Jacob bought it. Abraham had passed, Isaac had passed, Jacob was alive, he had his family, and he bought a piece of land. This land wasn't a place to bury. This was the first time that they had any land on which to live. He didn't own all the fields where his sheep grazed. He owned a part of land where his tent was set up and he set up an altar to God, a place for him to live and to worship God. So the only places at this point that the nation, the people rather of Israel had was a burial plot 
and a place to live and worship God. And oddly, at this point, this land was not contested. The owners hadn't been there in a long time, but this land was theirs. It was this first piece of the fulfillment of the promise. Well, what's the promise? Keep going back in Genesis. I know we're doing a bit of a roundabout work here, but we have to go, go to the context to really understand what Hebrews 11 is saying about Joseph. So go back with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Context of the story is this. You have Abraham, at this point, Abram. God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. So at this point, Abram, he has been called out of his land. He is kind of being a wanderer as it is. He doesn't know really where he's going, (coughs) but he does know the God who is leading him. And God tells Abram, I want you to take some animals. I want you to cut them in half, put half here, put half here. You're going to make like a pathway between a bunch of dead animals. But like half a cow here, half a cow there, half, you know, like this is what he was telling him to do. Now that sounds weird to us, but when you think about the culture and context of this, this is basically a way of doing a covenant or a contract. What you're saying is I and the, whoever I'm getting to the covenant with, we see this, these animals all cut in half and you have this pathway and we walk down it together. And what you're doing in that is basically saying, whatever, if I go back on my word, if I break the covenant, if I break the contract I'm making with you, may what's happened to these animals happen to me. Now, the fascinating thing about this covenant that happens between Abraham and God is that Abraham sets it up. But if you know the story, Abraham doesn't ever walk down. It's only God. God who walks through. God saying, hey, the full weight of the covenant and promise I'm making to you and your family, that's on me. It's not on you. It's on me. Well, that's crazy. What does that mean? It means this. God's promise to his people to bring them home, to bring them to a piece of land, an earthly physical land that would be their forever possession. God's like, that is something I'm taking on myself. It has nothing to do with you. I will deliver you. I will bring you through. I will carry you and your family, and I will get you home. That's an amazing, beautiful picture. The the Old Testament is basically this massive picture that all foreshadows what is to be and what is to come because that's ultimately what God does with us, right? Where when we surrender to him, when we submit our lives to him, follow him in faith and love, what does that mean? It means that our salvation is not ours. God made a home for us, an eternal home. And it's all on him. He's done all the work. He paid the price. It's all in him. It's an amazing picture. So that's, that's the foreshadowing of that. But before we get carried away there, I want to get us focused. Genesis 15. If you would look with me at verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. What? That's, that's a bit of a twist. Well, here's what's going on. God promises Abraham all of these things like, hey, the land and descendants more than you can count. And he says to God, God, how can I know? How can I be sure that you're going to do it? Right? Because let's be honest, that's a very honest human question that we ask God all the time. God, how can I really be sure that you're going to do what you say? That you're going to be what you say you are? Really honest question. And this is how God responds. 
Lord said to Abraham, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. Well, that seems sad. Where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. That's worse. But, verse 14, I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. If you know the story of Exodus, that's what it's foreshadowing there is the story of Exodus. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried in a ripe old age. Because after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. That whole thing there is the Amorites, because people will talk about like, well, man, Israel, they came in and just slaughtered everyone that lived there. They took over their land. The reason Israel came into that place, the reason Israel did what happened, what God had called them to do in taking out those that had lived there previously, God was waiting for the time when their sin, when the evil of those who lived there had gotten to a point that God's like, and we're done, and he wipes them away. Israel was God's judgment on that land. He was God's judgment on the people that had lived there for the sin that had taken place, which is why it wasn't happening yet. God's like, it's not ready yet. Their evil's not there yet. It's coming, it's building, but it's not there yet. But he tells them four generations. Now, let's think about this for a second. He promises 400 years Four generations. That math doesn't seem to compute very well for us. But the simple truth of it is, it does compute because we're looking at the legacy of Abraham. Abraham is not part of this generational thing. It's Abraham. The first generation generation is the, when the seed, the promised blessing is born. That's Isaac. He's generation one. So you have Isaac, you have Jacob, you have Joseph, you have Ephraim. Those are your four generations. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But four generations, 400 years, how does this play out? It plays out this way. You have hundreds of years, multiple generations of men who have come before Joseph. You have Abraham, you have Jacob, you have Isaac, you have these three guys. All of them perfect? Absolutely not. All of them failures in many ways. But all of them deemed faithful to God Every one of them. Why? Because in the end, every single one, despite their failings, despite their tripping, despite their sin, despite all of their shortcomings, every single one came to a place where they trusted in who God was and in what God said and in what God would do. They established for hundreds of years before Joseph came around, they had established a legacy in their family of knowing and trusting God. And something that I want us to understand is that legacy of faith is really the greatest gift that you can give to someone that's in your life. The legacy of the faith you hold. Why was Joseph able to cling to a promise that he wasn't even the recipient of? Now, he inherited the promise, but he wasn't the one that it was given to. Why would he cling to this promise? Because of the legacy of faith that went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to him. This legacy of faith and something that we as followers of Christ need to assess in our own lives is what is the legacy we are leaving behind for our kids? What is the legacy that we are leaving behind for the friends that are in our orbit, the family members who are around us? Are we people that are known as like, hey, something's going on. I will pray for you. I will come alongside you. Are we known as people who value our time with God? who value and cherish that. 
If you are in a relationship with uh, your spouse, you're married and so on, you have that relationship going on in your life, then you ought to know that the time you have with your spouse is significant and it's special. And there needs to be times of intention. There needs to be times of, of intentional pursuit there. And that's just your spouse. You may have known her for a long time. You may have known her for a long time. But one day, you're both going to pass away. But the reality is you have eternity with a God who shaped a universe. I think he deserves a little bit more than just passing affection. But an intentional, lifelong pursuit. So what is our legacy when people see our lives? When people see how you spend your time, what is your legacy that you leave behind? Whether it's to your kids, to your friends, what is your legacy? Are you going to be known as someone who trusted in the promises of God, trusted in the words of God, and acted on them, lived them out? Or are you going to be known as just some average person? How do you want to be known? Do you want to be known as that guy that's really funny? That, that guy that, oh man, did you see what he built? Have you tasted her cookies? Have you seen her decorating in her house? Have you heard him sing? Have you watched her act? Have you seen them play sports? Fill in whatever blank. Do you want that to be your legacy? How sad. How fleeting. How pointless are the things of this earth if, if they are not surrounded, founded, built upon a pursuit of the God of all things. Your talents, your skills are nothing but an anchor around your neck dragging you down if, if they are not built upon, founded upon the God who gave them to you. We can build ourselves up in a hundred different ways. But the best we're going to do is build up a Jenga tower. That's not going to last very long. The legacy of faith that preceded Joseph from Abraham, who's been given this. Now, this doesn't sound like that great of a promise. God's telling him, hey, before I fulfill this, before I give you all that I promised you, your family is going to be wandering. They're not going to have home. Your family is going to be enslaved. They're going to be oppressed. 400 years are going to go by between when I give you your son and when they come to their promised land. 400 years. That does not sound that great. But when you stop and think, Abraham is not looking at the immediate. That's what we want, right? We want the immediate satisfaction. God, you said it should happen right now. We want the immediate but ultimately it comes down to, do we trust that God's got it? Because the truth is, loved ones, you might not ever see it. You might not see the fulfillment of the things that you've been longing for and praying for. I understand that there are some of us in this room that have been praying for the same thing for years and decades. And God, when? God, when? God, when? You might not see it. But what is your legacy going to be? Well, I didn't see it in time, so I give up. Or is it, God, I might not ever see it. But I know you. 
and I'm trusting you and I will follow and I will walk with you regardless of what I see here and now. What is it that our legacy that's being left behind? This is the legacy that we have presented to us as Joseph's family with his, with his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather. Now again, are these men perfect? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You're not going to need to be perfect to leave behind a legacy of faith. Thank God. Because I, I know this is a shock for some of you, but you're not perfect. That's hard. I'm sorry. But we don't need to be. The question comes, what is the legacy that we leave behind? Joseph has this legacy of faith leading up to his life. And what an amazing thing that is. Because that's legacy... <clears throat> this time stamp is 400 years. It started with Isaac's birth. It didn't start. They, weren't in, they were not in Egypt for 400 years. They were not enslaved for 400 years. And it's, it's easy to misunderstand the way the text is written with that. But when you look at the context of this, the promise of the 400 year, that mark, starts with Isaac's birth. That's the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham when Isaac is born. Isaac is generation one. Remember 400 years? Four generations. The first generation, Isaac, he comes, he lives, he dies. Second generation, 60 years later, comes Jacob, generation number two. Then 80 years later comes Joseph, generation number three. And then 35 years later comes Ephraim, generation number four, Joseph's son. So now we've got these four generations. So hang on, So we, then is that when they all go back? It says after the fourth generation. So the fourth generation, Ephraim's son, or Joseph's son, and that whole generation is going to live and die before this promise is fulfilled, before this promise comes to its completion. Now, something, <coughs> excuse me, something for us to understand at this point in time, the people of uh, Israel, we don't really know what the lifespan was across the globe, but we know the people of Israel were living still until the 130-some years, because we see in Exodus 6 that... Um, the same generation as Joseph, third generation down, was Levi. He lived 137 years. His son, Koath, lived 133 years. His son, 137. Moses, this is the lineage of Moses, by the by, 120 years. It wasn't until you got to Moses, sixth generation, when he was 80 years old, that they actually left Egypt. At that point, uh, Joseph had been dead 150 years. That's when it happened, though. It didn't happen right away. It didn't happen in Abraham's lifetime or Isaac's or Jacob's or even Joseph or even Ephraim's lifetime. That generation after, it was the fifth, sixth, seventh generation. They're the ones who got to see the blessing. They're the ones who got to see it fulfilled. And something that I think is amazing for us to think about is the blessing that your life, your legacy can have upon people that you have never met and will never see. The people in your life that you encounter and then gone. The people in your life that you've been praying for and they come to Christ and praise God and the lineage that that creates. If you have kids, think about it this way. Your children, if you're lucky, you'll know your grandchildren. If you're very fortunate, you might meet your great-grandchildren, but odds are they're not going to really remember much of you. But you're not meeting your great-great-grandchildren or your great-great-great-great. You're not meeting those generations down. But the life you live 
the legacy you live and leave behind can impact generation after generation after generation after generation. The seeds of blessing that come from the faithfulness of the people of God as they invest. Now, I understand not all of us have kids, and I get that, and I'm not trying to say this is only a thing for there, but the truth is we, there, you have physical children, but then what about your spiritual kids? When I've talked with people about uh, different job things, right, different job interviews and things, over the years I've talked with different churches, different friends, different pastors, and the conversation comes up actually quite frequently of what do you do what questions should you ask when you're interviewing a new pastor, when you're, when you're looking, or a pastor's looking for a new church? What, these, questions, these conversations come, have come up quite often, actually, more than I ever thought they would throughout the course of my life. And I thought about it a lot. And the answer that I'd come back to is if I was ever to be interviewing to hire a new pastor, one of the first questions I would ask, and to me, one of the most important questions I would ask, is who are you discipling right now? And I wouldn't want reference forms from the last place they worked or this guy or that guy or your aunt, uncle, whoever, neighbor. I want the people that you're discipling right now, I want them to be your references. How have they taught? And then I would ask them, so how has this person taught you? How have they discipled you? What has God shown you? How do you see God in their life? Because we're supposed to be spiritual parents to people in our lives. We're supposed to be reaching out people in our lives, raising up a generation who loves and follows God. The legacy we leave behind can last way longer than our brief blip of the screen on this planet. At this point, at this point of Joseph's death, his sons would have been somewhere around 75, 80 years old, right in that range. We're not 100% sure of when they were born, but it would have been right in that kind of five-year window. Now, I understand for us, when you're talking 75, 80, you're talking about someone who has more runway behind them than runway ahead of them. But at this point, that's kind of like they just finished middle-age crisis at this point. So these guys still have a whole lot left of their life to live as they're looking at their father, and their father says, hey, when I die, take my bones with you when you leave. He's like, I know we're not staying here. This isn't our home. Egypt is not our home. Why does he want his bones taken? Because Egypt is not the home. It's not the promised land. So he's like, take my bones with, because I want to be in the land that God promised us. That was what the direction he gave to the sons of Israel, the children of Jacob. To his own kids, which, well, guess what? None of them were alive when it happened. Not a single one of the people that heard his request was alive when Israel actually left Egypt. So how did that request happen? How was that fulfilled? Because of the legacy that started with Abraham, went to Joseph, and continued down the line. What is our legacy that we leave behind? Is it a legacy of someone who knows the Lord, trusts the Lord, who hears what he has done, and that excites and builds our faith? Because if you know something about Joseph's story, <coughs> you would know that he has heard the stories of, or if you know something of Joseph's culture, I should say, the culture of Israel and the Hebrews, you would know that it is some, a culture that is very oral, 
They wouldn't sit around the table and talk about latest TV shows. They wouldn't sit and scroll aimlessly and mindlessly on Instagram, which is very easy to do and lose an hour, so careful. They wouldn't be, they didn't have any of these nonsensical things. What did they have? They would gather around the fire. They would sit and they would hear story after story. Hey, tell me, dad, tell me the one about Adam again. God, God, tell me, or God, uh, dad, tell me about, tell me about Noah. Tell me, tell me about Nimrod. Tell me about the warrior of old. Tell me about, and they would hear the story after story after story. If you know and follow Christ, do not underestimate the power of your testimony and your story and the testimony and story of those who've gone before you. Do not underestimate that as you share that with those you disciple, you mentor, you pour into. There is such an amazing power that while my testimony is not very special, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home and I've been a Christian my whole life and never really did the dumb thing. What? Do you understand the miracle that took place at the point of your salvation where a heart of stone that was incapable of knowing, comprehending, experiencing anything to do with God and it shattered and reformed into a heart of flesh as only the God of the universe who spoke it into existence could do and he took it and formed a new breathing life. Do you understand the miracle that happened at your salvation? The impossible miracle that happened at your salvation. There is no such thing as a boring testimony because every single one is a testimony of the miraculous power of God who not just shapes the universe, but shapes the human heart. Never underestimate the story that you have and the legacy you can give as you share this with others. Joseph knew the stories and the promises, not because he was there, but because he had heard them over and over and over and over and over again. And his great-great-grandson and that generation brought him forth out of Egypt into the promised land. Why? Not because they heard his request, not because they had such a great relationship with my great-great-uncle Joe, but because the legacy and the generations continued as it was passed again and again and again to the next and the next and the next. Now, all of this, I know this is supposed to be about Joseph, and I know a lot of this has been about Abraham and other people that are not Joseph, but we need to understand all of this to understand why in Hebrews 11, his commendation is for he believed God would take them out of Egypt and he asked for his bones to be taken with them when they left. Why does this all matter? It all matters. Why did this all happen? For us to understand the, the, how amazing that sentence is, we need to understand the, pack, the background of this. So now let's fast forward from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, let's talk about Joseph and his life. Think about his life specifically. 17 years old. And here he is, standing before his family. Some people like to talk about Joseph as though he was arrogant. And I don't get that. I don't see the arrogance of Joseph anywhere in the scriptures. Well, he was a 17-year-old kid. And he told his, his brothers that they were going to bow down to him. No, he, he didn't. 
It was a 17-year-old kid who was listening to God, given visions from God, and then shared that faithfully with his family. And then, as he faithfully shared what God had given them, what was their response? Oh, well done. Thank you, Joseph. No. It was, all right, let's kill him. Well, that escalated quickly. But that's what they wanted to do. They took him and threw him into a pit. And they only threw him in a pit because the oldest one, Reuben, is like, guys, we can't just kill him. Throw him in the pit that will starve to death. That will be fine. We won't actually have killed him then. Logic. Of course, in his mindset, his thought was like, maybe I can sneak back and release him and free him later. Brothers didn't know that. So when Reuben wasn't around, they pulled him out of the pit because they saw a caravan of Midianites coming along. And they're like, hey, sell him off. We can get some money for him. And then we'll just kill a goat and throw some blood on, on Joseph's special coat that, that dad gave him and not us. He got a special coat. And here, dad, look at the special coat covered in blood. Your son's dead. Now, they were probably more compassionate than that. But this is the beginning of a story. His dad's not looking for him. Why? Because his dad thinks he's dead. His brothers aren't looking for him. Why? Because they're the ones that got rid of him. And now he's gone from son of quite prominent position in his family to a slave. And he lives as a slave and everything he does turns out well. Why? Not because he was so good or so skilled, but because he loved and faithfully followed God. So God blessed what he was doing and blessed his work. And everything he did, God was blessing it. And Potiphar, his owner, is like, hey, whatever he does, does pretty good. Let's give him a little bit more. Hey, that went pretty good. A little bit more. Hey, just do, just do it all. Put him in charge of everything. And everything was going great. And Joseph's life was finally going well again, was finally going well. And then Potiphar's wife is like, hey, that guy is really attractive. And she tries to seduce him and force herself on him and multiple times. And he keeps saying, no, no, no. And then eventually she's like, yes. And he's like, no, and takes off running. So fast he leaves his coat behind. She screams, she accuses him of rape, falsely accused, gets thrown in prison. (sighs) Start over. Still faithful, still faithful, still faithful. And as he continues being faithful to God, as he continues being faithful and he's in prison and he starts becoming like model prisoner and basically he's barely guarded as he's now the one who's supposed to like take care of all the prisoners. I don't know if you know much about prison, but usually they don't let the inmates run the jail, usually. But in this case, that's more or less what was happening. Why? Because as he was faithful, God continued to bless and continued to bless. But as the blessings increase, there's trials that come. And so now you have Pharaoh, who sends a couple of his servants, a baker and a cup bearer. He gets mad at him, says, jail. They go to jail. And they're arguing, they're talking, they're like, we've had these dreams, we don't know what they mean. And Joseph's like, oh, hang on, I got a God who could take care of that. What are your dreams? Long story short, cupbearer, three days, you're going to be back. Tell Pharaoh about me. Get me out of here. Baker, three days, you're dead. Sorry. Three days later, Baker dies, cupbearer's back. Great for the cupbearer. Cupbearer forgets all about him. Two years go by. Still faithful, still faithful, still faithful. Two years go by. Pharaoh has dreams, doesn't understand them. 
Cupbearer's like, oh yeah, there's a dude who can take care of that. I forgot about him. Yeah, his name's Joseph. He's in jail. Go get him. And so they bring Joseph in. Joseph then interprets the dreams. He's like, no, not me, but my God can. What are the dreams? Oh, dreams mean this. Seven years of abundance. Seven years of famine. You might want to get somebody to organize this because if you save during the abundance, you're not going to die in the famine. Pharaoh's like, brilliant. And Joseph becomes second in command now of all of Egypt. Only one with more authority than him is Pharaoh himself. But Pharaoh didn't worry himself about anything because Joseph was over all of it. Now as the story continues, what happens next? His brothers are now in the middle of a famine. Seven years of abundance, first couple years of famine. Brothers are like, hey, Dad, Jacob, we got nothing. Our food's gone. We heard Egypt's got some. So Jacob's like, all right, go on down. Here's some money, buy some food. You know, I'd rather buy food from Egypt than die, so go ahead. So he sends them. And Joseph recognizes them. Joseph sees his brothers. He's like, oh, hey, I know you. And he has a moment where he's tested. What will he do? Will he exact his vengeance? Which most of us wouldn't fault him for. No, he doesn't. What he does instead is he then puts them to a test. Have they changed? Are they different? Will they sell out their brother? Will they get rid of the brother, the, the other favored son now? Benjamin, Joseph's gone, so now it's Joe's little brother, Ben. And the long story short, they are different. They have changed. And the way it all works out, Jacob comes down, whole family comes down to Egypt. And Jacob spends the last of his years there. But Jacob was worried about it. He's like, but God, Egypt isn't our home. God's like, yeah, you're... Jacob, it's fine. Go down to Egypt. You're going to die there? That's, that's where we're going to spend the last of your days. God's telling Jacob. He's like, but I, I'm still going to do what I said. I'm still going to bring you all home. So Jacob goes. And at the age roughly 53 is when Jacob passes. At 53 of Joseph's life. Jacob passes. Actually, that's wrong. Sorry, 57. Wrong. 53 years after that is how long he lived after. 57 is when Jacob died. So Joseph has the rest of his life to think about what's happened. We don't know anything that's happened between the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph. 53 years go by. And the next thing we see is Joseph on his deathbed as he's gone through trial after trial after trial after trial. And what does he do with each and every test and trial? But he continues to walk faithfully with God, trusting not in himself, but in God. One of the amazing things about the example of him is that in 2 Corinthians 1.20, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. When we're looking for the promises of God, when we're looking for the things of God to happen, it has nothing to do with us trying to orchestrate and us trying to maneuver and manipulate. and make. It's like, no, all the, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Now, Joseph, Joseph didn't know the story of what would happen at Golgotha. He didn't know the story of the nativity. These things hadn't happened yet. But what he did know was the faithfulness of the God who had been faithful to his family as he had walked through all of this.
He knew this God. He knew that a Savior would come because that was, was all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. That there would be a Savior to come. He knew these things would be. What was his trust and what was his faith in? Not in himself, but in the God who brought his family and him through every single step. Because faith has grown through our action. Faith has grown through our action. You want to have stronger faith? Then take a step of one. You want to have stronger faith? Then start moving in a direction where you'll see God respond. Well, I'm, I don't know. It's a Casting Crown song. It talks about being caught in the middle. I know Casting Crown's old song. So, but it goes like this. We, we want to be these fearless warriors, but like in a white picket fence. Right? It's like we want to we swim in the ocean, but we don't get off the splash pad. If you want to see your faith grow, then start taking steps of faith. Maybe they're smaller. It doesn't matter. Just start walking God's direction. And see what happens with that. See how God works in that, shows up in that. It says in James 2, in James chapter 2, verse 26, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith without good works, excuse, so also faith is dead without good works. And what is that saying? Now, people often interpret this and correctly, rightly interpret this as saying that if we have faith in God, our life should show it. There should be fruit in our life that shows it. And that is absolutely true. But we can also take this a second way, which I think is just as true. If we are not stepping out in faith and we are not doing works of faith as we seek to walk and follow Christ, then our faith is going to shrivel up. If we are never experiencing, seeing, trusting the grandeur, the greatness, the mighty strength of God Almighty, then why would we ever trust it? If you never experience that, if you're never taking the steps of faith that you need to take. So you're never seeing God move and you're never seeing God respond. What kind of faith are you going to have? Step in faith. The two things, going full circle back to the beginning of this, Hebrews chapter 11, the two things he's commended for. Chapter 11, verse 22, it was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones when they left. Two things he's commended for, trusting the word of God and taking whatever steps he needed to take to be a part of that. But that's scary. Yes, it is. Until you start walking, until you start going, and then you begin to realize that this God who has been with you every step is still with you now, and for the next, and for the next, and for the next, and the next, and could go on for a while that way. And the one thing you begin to find is the fear is not as much there. It's kind of like when you're a little kid, and your dad is right in front of you and you jump out and he catches you. And you're like, cool. And then you get a little braver and you start doing it when dad's not noticing. And dad's like, ah, and he tries to catch you. 
And you can't, why? Because as a little kid, you just trust. He's caught me every time before. I've got no problem. I'll jump again. It doesn't matter that he's not looking. But that's how little kids are. Because dad has not dropped them before. They trust dad's going to keep catching them regardless of the circumstances. And similarly with us and God, as you keep stepping in faith and seeing God move, the fear starts to go away. Why? Because as God continues to be faithful, which he always will be, your faith begins to grow. Please pray with me. Jesus, there is so so much that we can be thankful for, so much that we can look to and see how you have been faithful and good all through our lives. But God, sometimes it is so easy for us to lose sight or forget or focus on the wrong things and have fear. But God, you've given us faith, you've given us yourself. So give us the strength to leave the legacy of faith behind that we are called to. Give us the faith to take that first step so that every future step will only strengthen and strengthen our faith in you as we see you move. Let us share our story of faith so that others will be inspired by it. God, there's so much that we can look to in this simple verse. He wanted to go home. He didn't want to be buried in a foreign land. He wanted to go home. And he believed you would bring him there. And he took the steps to make that happen. God, give us the faith to believe what you say and take the steps to act on it. We love you. We thank you. And in Jesus' name, amen.